My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, privileged to open the Word of God with you this morning. Go ahead and find Genesis 4 in your Bible. Let's go back to the beginning. We've been starting uh, this series and it's been great to be in the book of Genesis looking at origins. But find Genesis. That's the first book. Find the big number four. That's where we will be digging into the Word of God. Well, I'm the oldest of five boys, no girls in case you're wondering in my house, and I remember making a lot of messes, some pretty grand messes, but there's one that stands out in my mind as one of the messiest messes we ever made. My parents were gone, so we were, you know, I was babysitting, uh, not old enough to do so, but I was, and we, we had, um, you, you remember those uh, packaging peanuts. They were like little styrofoam. They don't use them much anymore, good reason. Okay, but there was a box full of packing peanuts in our living room. And so we decided to have a little fun. And we had basically like a snow fight with all of this styrofoam. And then it hit us, mom's coming home. We better clean up. Now, I'm not sure which one of us had the brilliant idea but we decided vacuuming him would be the best uh, way to go because quick, whatever. So we took the vacuum and we vacuumed over them, except that's not at all what happened. Instead, somehow it, it, it crushed them and exploded them and spit them into a million little particles. And I don't know why we kept thinking it was going to work. Well, let's just, now we'll just, no, it just kept getting smaller and smaller and going everywhere. They were everywhere. I kid you not when like for the next six months, uh, we were picking little particles out of our hair, off our clothes, off the curtains. I distinctly remember my mom finding them on the curtains and, and being really upset. It was a disaster. Now last week we were in Genesis 3 and we saw Adam and Eve make a mess of things, a big mess. And this was not a mess that they could just cover up or clean up. This is a mess that actually shot uh, shock waves into the cosmos. Adam's, Adam and Eve's sin, it affected everything, absolutely everything. It was an explosion of sin, and it actually invaded every part of this universe. Now, in Genesis 4 today, we're going to see the reverberation of this sin, this shock wave, and we're going to see further tragedy. So I'm going to read in Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. I'd ask you to follow along with me. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. Here's God's word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Verse six, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, 
Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, chapter 4 is a roller coaster of emotion. Notice how it starts it starts with joy, it starts with parents who have the gift of a son and then the gift of another son. So even though sin has tainted the world, there, there remains incredible beauty and love. And if you've ever had a kid, you can remember back, can't you, for that, in that moment. It's like, yes, the world's messed up, but in this one moment when I hold my baby for the first time, there's hope, there's, there's joy, there's beauty. So Adam and Eve are here. They have children Despite the curse, despite the pain, they had this, this beautiful hope and optimism. And then, within a few verses, we have absolute heartbreak. We have the first death ever recorded. And this isn't just an ordinary death. This is murder. It's one thing for Adam and Eve to grow old and to die of natural causes. That is the consequence of the fall. But here, here we have them losing a son to a grisly murder at the hands of another one of their sons. I don't know if it gets any worse than that, to be honest. But this heinous act is a direct result of the sin that has spread through Adam and Eve to their sons and to humanity. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy God spoke to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 15. So if you read in chapter 3, verse 15, God says this, and he's speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, history is full of strife between Satan and the sons of Eve. And Cain and Abel are just the first in a long line of victims. So this is what God said would happen, right? He said, if you eat of the tree, there will be death. And here we have death. They probably would have never imagined it happening this way. Now this account of Cain and Abel is not an isolated tragedy. It's not just one sad story. This story of Cain and Abel is how sin stalks each of us. We can learn something from the story of Cain and Abel because every one of us is affected by sin. So Genesis 4 teaches us about the nature of sin and how to escape it. I wanna begin by looking at verse seven here. Look at the language that, that God uses when he's speaking to Cain. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So as God speaks to Cain, he, he paints this picture of sin like a wild beast that's lurking in the shadows, ready to pounce, wanting to overtake, wanting to dominate, and we're called to rule over it. And so this morning, we come face to face with the beastly nature of sin. And the first thing I want to see, see is this. Number one, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is crouching at the door. One of the things that makes sin so incredibly dangerous is that it is always with us, lurking in the corners of our hearts. All it takes is for us to give in, to, to give our flesh, our sin, free reign, and Genesis 4 speaks for itself what can happen. You might say, well, I would never commit the sin of Cain. Like, I'm, it's not possible that I would sin in that kind of way. I'm not capable of murder. But here's the thing. Sin is so subtle. Sin is so sneaky. When, when temptation begins, it, it seems rather benign. It doesn't seem like it's going to harm just about anything. It starts with desire, the Bible says, and then somehow that desire mutates into sin. James 1 tells us how it works. In James 1, verse 14 and 15, it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is how the mechanism of sin works. Apparently, desire can carry sin like a woman carries an unborn child, and then desire gives birth to sin, and what an ugly baby it is. Now, I know we always say there's no such thing as an ugly baby, right? And some of you are saying that's not true. I didn't say that. This is an ugly baby. Okay? When sin is conceived and sin is born, it is not pretty. And then it gets worse. The ugly baby grows up to be an ugly toddler and an ugly teenager and an ugly an adult. In other words, sin grows. It, it, it becomes, it does more damage <laughs> And as we see with Cain, all of that can happen pretty quickly. Cain's desire seems like it's approval. He wants the approval of God. He wants approval of others. That's a good thing to desire approval from God. That's not a bad desire. But every sin is a distortion or a twisting of something that is good, a good desire. And this is how sin often deceives us. I can think of a couple of good desires that I've had that have been twisted into sin, and maybe you can identify with this. The desire to be respected by my wife or my children. That's not bad, right? I want my children to respect me. And then comes, you know, the time in which they give you that look, roll their eyes, say that harsh comment, very disrespectful, and, and I sit there and think, I deserve to be respected by my kids, right? And almost without even understanding it's happening, that desire morphs into sin, and I respond in a way that is not Christ-like. How about this? A desire to be liked by others. And the book of Proverbs actually says that a good reputation is worth more than even great riches. So 
not bad to have a good reputation. It's good for people to like you, to think well of you, but if we're not careful, that desire can easily become people-pleasing and doing what we shouldn't do in order to get others to like us. The desire to be a good pastor or preach a good sermon, that's a good desire, right? (laughs) And it doesn't matter what it might be, Satan knows how to attack us, and before we know it, we're desiring something that is sinful, we're proud, we're thinking of ourselves, and now all of a sudden we've been deceived. The beast of sin is lurking. He's looking for opportunities to twist good desires so that those desires conceive sin. So Cain here desires God's approval, but his offering, it, it, it receives disapproval from God. People have speculated about what was wrong with his offering. We just don't know. We're not really given that information. Uh, What we can be sure of is that God disapproves not only of Cain's sacrifice, but actually of Cain himself. In verse five, it tells us, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. It was more about Cain and his heart than it was about the offering. What we do for God is only as pleasing as our heart is true and pleasing to him. New Testament sheds a little more light in Hebrews 11. We read this about Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel had a heart of faith. So it stands to reason that Cain did not have a heart of faith. If Cain had been full of faith, In Yahweh, I believe his offering would have been accepted. Cain's faith is probably more in himself than it is in his God, right? Because he believes his offering should be accepted by God. He felt entitled, like God should approve me. How dare God not approve my sacrifice? So what do we do when we, like Cain, lack the faith to obey God? When we fall into sin, when we fall into sin, is that downward spiral of sin inevitable? Like we're locked in and just going all the way. Is it inevitable to slide into sin like Cain does and just go further and further away from God? The answer in Genesis 4 is no. That is not inevitable. Look at how God comes to Cain. Look at how he mercifully comes to him. He doesn't allow him to wallow in his sin alone. He lovingly warns him. He calls him to repent, to change, to go a different direction. In Genesis 4, verse 6 and 7, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Thankfully, God always gives us a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Because of Jesus, because of the power that he gives his children, which we just sang about and we just took in communion together, celebrating Jesus' death on our behalf. Because of that, we don't have to give in to sin. The downward spiral of Genesis 4 is not inevitable for those that are in Jesus. 
at any point. We can cry out in humility. We can beg God to rescue us. We can repent. We can change. So, so as your desire starts to morph into sin, at that very point where you realize, okay, this is not a healthy desire anymore. Yeah, I want my kids to respect me, but I'm becoming short. I'm becoming angry. I'm saying things I shouldn't. At that very moment, we can cry out and say, God, deliver me. We can walk away. We can, we can ask him for help. He's there to deliver us. Or we've already committed the sin. We've said things we shouldn't. We've done things we shouldn't. And now we're, we're, we're sitting there guilty, feeling guilty. At that moment, we can cry out to God and we can say, deliver me. I don't want to go any further down this path into this sin. And he'll deliver us. At any point along the way, in that downward spiral, we can cry out and be delivered. We can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do what God told Cain to do, and that's rule over sin. I know that because of Romans 6.14 that says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. More about God's grace in just a little bit, but I want to recognize that Cain was offered the grace of God, and he said no. He rejected it. He decided to slide further into sin, and the result is devastating. Not only does sin crouch at the door, second, sin ravages relationships. Sin ravages relationships. When we do give in to sin, it always affects our relationships. Saw this back in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve and their marriage. Before sin, they, they were open and they were trusting. The Bible says they were naked and not ashamed. After sin, they're guarded. They're critical. They're blaming each other, right? Sin has hurt their marriage. For Cain, his disappointment morphed into pride, jealousy, anger towards his brother Abel, and really to God as well. And then anger morphs into murder. This is what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And he says, but I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, anger and murder are cut out of the same cloth, made out of the same stuff. Murder is just anger that has fermented and mutated and grown into the ugliest of monsters. Whenever we allow sin to fester in our hearts and we refuse God's way of escape, it will hurt others. Please get this. Sin in our hearts will leak out and it will hurt others. And maybe you think your pet sin is your business, right? You've got it under control, not a big deal. Don't be deceived. Sin is never described as a domesticated pet. In Genesis 4, it's a wild beast. It's lurking. It wants to overtake us. It wants to ravage us, and it wants to destroy our relationships. Notice in Genesis 4 that Cain's sin affects all of his relationships. I mean, obviously, his relationship with Abel is severed. But can you imagine how uh, his relationship with his parents would have been affected? I mean, think about that. They've lost their son. Their son has murdered their other son. His relationship will never be the same with his parents. He is no longer in the community. He's lost that place. He immediately realizes that he's made some enemies. And if we understand what's happening in Genesis, he's probably worried about siblings 
who are going to come after him, which is ironic because he killed his sibling. But he's fearful. He knows that his sin has affected all of his relationships. We see Cain in verse 16, you know, kind of running away from everything he knows and fleeing the presence of God, and now he lives in no man's land called Nod. And because of Cain's hardness of heart, he's cut himself off from everyone who could minister grace to him. This is where sin takes us, all alone, isolated from those who love us and who care for us. Here's the crazy thing. The more that you and I choose ourselves over those around us, the more we get exactly what we want. We have ourselves and no one around us. And now we're isolated. Now we're in a place where Satan loves to attack us because we're all alone. One of the areas I've seen this real vividly over the years is those people who've wandered into the sin of adultery. It's a sin that starts so subtly and ends so sadly. You want to talk about sin ravaging relationships? Adultery is one of the most heart-wrenching examples. And it starts with that stolen glance or that flirtatious comment or imagining in our heads something, and then it leaves such a wreckage. God does provide forgiveness. God does provide restoration, but relationships are always affected, and sometimes they they just can't come back. I want to implore you, if God is speaking to you through his spirit this morning, through his word, that sin will devastate your relationships and you're flirting with, you've just taken a few steps in some kind of relationship that that would be considered adultery, Right now, cry out to God. Ask him for deliverance. Go to your pastors. Go to your house group leader. Just talk to somebody. Talk to your spouse. Yeah, it's going to be painful. It's going to be really painful. But you can, wherever you are in the process, cry out. If you've already sinned, you've already committed infidelity or sin, still cry out. Ask God to restore. Come to, to, to us. We would love to pray through that with you. Sin is so deceptive. And so I'm just warning you and myself this morning, let's beware, let's watch out. Sin will always leak out and it will hurt others around us. Now the only thing more deadly than the way sin leads us away from our fellow man is the way that sin leads us away from God. And this is the third point here. Sin drags us away from God. Thirdly, sin drags us away from God. The crouching beast of sin is not content to merely sink its teeth into us. It won't be content until it drags us away from our creator. And it drives a wedge between us and God. Again, we've already seen this in in chapter three where Adam and Eve, after they sin, they hide from God. They don't wanna be around him. Sin has driven a wedge. And now in chapter four, we see that wedge driven further and further. I think the saddest thing about Genesis four is not even the murder of Abel. And let me be clear, that's a horrific injustice. The saddest thing about Genesis chapter four is that the further Cain goes into sin, the more calcified his heart gets, the harder he becomes. God speaks to him. God offers a way out and he is hardened and he's angry and he's sarcastic with God, and he tries to lie to God. God is calling Cain back to himself and 
Cain rejects God's grace. Look at the beginning of this divergence in verse 5. Verse 5, you know, we have Cain offering something that doesn't please God for whatever reason, whether it was something wrong with the sacrifice, whether it was his heart, but he did not please God. And truth is, in and of ourselves, we all lack the ability to please God. Even the faith required for salvation, Ephesians 2 says, is a gift of God. And so Cain's initial dilemma is the dilemma we all face. We need God's grace. We need his grace. Look at how Cain responds in verse five. Instead of shame for his sin and repentance and accepting God's grace, he gets hardened, he gets angry. It can even be seen on his face. It says that his face was disfigured. Like his countenance was affected. This anger is filling him and he is incensed. How dare God not accept my sacrifice as if God owes him. And I think right here, this is the moment in which it's the beginning of the end. When we start to question God's goodness and we think he's not for me, he's against me, that's where we begin a dark descent that leads away from God. It's one thing to make a mistake, to stumble, to sin. We are human. Yes, to be human is to err, right? This happens. But what do we do when God, by his mercy, calls us back? This is where we start to doubt his goodness and we start to say, you know what? God actually is holding me back. God actually doesn't want good things for me. And so Cain starts down this highway away from God. And it starts with that offering and then it's his hatred of Abel and then it's his murder and then it's the way he responds to God's mercy and he stiff arms God. And then he moves away from the community and he moves away from God's presence, the text says. And so as Cain starts down this highway away from God, we see that in the chapter of Scripture, his descendants get on that highway and pedal to the metal. (laughs) They get far away from God. We get to the point in verse 19, which we didn't read yet. We will now. and we, We see this descendant of Cain named Lamech. Verse 19 of Genesis 4. And Lamech is like the great, 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 great grandson of Cain. Lamech took two wives, first instance of breaking the marriage covenant. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other is Zillah. And then if you go to verse 23 and 24, we see this. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. I can imagine what would happen if I came home and I said, hear my voice, you wife of Mark. Listen to what I say. It would not bode well for me. Uh, I think it might be worse than the styrofoam incident of 86 or whatever year it was. But here we've reached a new low of depravity. Here we have a man who gathers wives like property and treats them as such. A man who boasts about his murder. There's no shame here. This is a man who is arrogant, and this is where sin takes us. We have this in chapter 4 to help us understand sin, left unchecked, just progresses away from God, and we get to this place. As I was preparing, I was thinking of Newton's first law of motion, also called inertia, where an object in motion continues to stay in motion 
in that direction unless an other force acts upon it, right, and changes the direction. And I want, in Genesis 4, I want you to see that there is another force at work. There is something else happening. It's not just man sliding further and further into wickedness. There's another um, force that, that is able to, that is stronger than sin, and we see that in God's heart. Look at the way God takes initiative in Genesis 4. I, I want you to glance through Genesis 4, and if you see spots where it says, the Lord said to Cain, just take note of those. I, I underline that in my Bible because it's God taking initiative. The Lord said to Cain, it happens four times. <clears throat> in verse 6, we've already noticed God's kind warning. Where the Lord said to Cain, like, you don't have to do this, Cain. <laughs> Sin wants to destroy you. Don't give in. We saw that. Verse 9, God pursues Cain even though he's just murdered his brother. He's stained with sin. He's maybe literally stained with blood. And God mercifully comes to him. And he doesn't have to do that. Cain has just committed the worst sin, and God pursues him. And God comes after Cain in the same way he came after Adam and Eve when they sinned. In Genesis 3, 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And here he says, where is Abel, your brother? It's not because he doesn't know. God's not after information. He's after Cain's heart. And verse 10, Cain stiff arms God God continues to communicate to him, and he doesn't have to do any of this. He really doesn't. Verse 15, then in verse 15, God gives Cain protection, puts a mark on him. He actually promises protection. Now, because man is made in the image of God, the taking of a human life deserves death. In just a few chapters, we'll read in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So Cain deserves death. And the fact that God protects him with this marking can be described as nothing other than, than mercy. The fact that God has mercy on a person who doesn't deserve it. Many have debated what Cain's mark was. Some possibilities that I read in commentaries this week are a mole, maybe, big mole probably, a tattoo, didn't know they had artists back then, but maybe figured it out. And some even said a, hair, a distinctive haircut, which made me chuckle, and I could only think of a mullet, and like um, MacGyver-type mullet, you know, and everyone's like, oh, there goes Cain. There's Cain. He's protected by God. Look at that hair. <laughs> I don't know what it was. The, the fact is, we don't know. We can't know. We're not given that information. Doesn't really matter. The point is, God used this mark to protect Cain. It was a way for him to mercifully protect him. But before I go on, I did want to acknowledge that for the first couple hundred years of our nation's history, many American churches taught that the mark of Cain was dark skin. This teaching was intentional, and it was evil. Uh, the mark of Cain as dark skin is a fallacy that propped up a whole system of injustice and racism, and it's absolutely part of our Christian history in America. So, it's important for us to call it out as really poor biblical interpretation laced with prejudice and pride. Nothing more to say other than that, except if you ever hear somebody talk about that, would you just call them out on it and say, do your biblical homework, study it? It's just not the case. 
Reading on in Genesis 4, I want you to see there's, there's even more of God's grace towards the end. Verse 25, God gives Adam and Eve another son named Seth. You can see right there in verse 25. Another life, hope, a future. And verse 26, we have apparently people who are calling upon the name of the Lord. God still has people who believe in him. The point is this, God isn't finished with humanity. He's not done yet. He's gonna continue to take initiative in the lives of human beings all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout history. We see a God who pursues a people who don't deserve it. It's that love that we just sang about. It's that love that doesn't make sense, but he pursues us anyway. We often fall into sin, and God mercifully provides a way forward. The death of Abel is tragic, and yet God includes it here in Genesis 4 for a very specific reason. One reason is to teach us how dangerous sin is. And another reason, which may surprise you, he wants us to see Abel and think of his son Jesus. What God says in verse 10 is significant. He says in in Genesis 4.10, the voice, speaking to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And we understand this more fully when we come to Hebrews 12. And I don't know if you've ever connected these before, but Hebrews 12, 22, the very beginning, and then 24 says, but you, speaking to us who are under the new covenant, but you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's something about Jesus' death that we're supposed to see when we look at the death of Abel. What is that? Well, both bloods are speaking. What does Abel's blood speak? What does Abel's blood shout? Abel's blood shouts vengeance. I mean, God hears it speaking from the ground, vengeance. God looks at the blood of Abel and his vengeance is stirred towards sin. So if Abel's blood shouts vengeance, what does Jesus' blood shout? Christ's blood shouts forgiveness. When God looks at the blood of his son, it's not his vengeance that's stirred, it's his compassion towards our sin. Abel's blood speaks of the destruction of sin. Christ's blood speaks of the victory over sin. Abel's blood speaks strife, and Christ's blood speaks peace. Abel's blood speaks death, and Christ's blood speaks life, new life. So even though Genesis 4 is a story that takes us from the beauty of the garden to the ugliness of the grave, God reverses the curse in Jesus. God actually turns it around he takes the ugliness of the grave and he, he, he takes us to the beauty of life in him. When we were dead in our sins, he takes us and he makes us alive. That's what Jesus' blood speaks. And because of Jesus' sacrificial death, we can be forgiven. We can escape the beast of sin. So I want you this morning to hear not only is sin dangerous, yes. Not only will sin destroy your life and destroy the relationships around you, yes but Jesus' blood can take away sin. Jesus' blood offers hope for your sin, whether you've never called out to him before or whether you've called out to him a thousand times. His blood 
speaks forgiveness. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, we can be forgiven and escape this beast of sin. Why? Because the beast of sin was defeated at the cross. Jesus hung on that cross, and and what did he say? He said, it is finished. And then three days later, he bursts from the tomb, and he proves it's finished by resurrecting. The grave has no power over us if we find our identity in Jesus, and sin has no dominion over us if we walk in grace. So this morning, as we've surveyed the spiral of sin in Genesis 4, let's remember that's not the final word. Jesus' blood speaks a final word. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so overwhelmed with thanksgiving for your son, Jesus. Where would we be without your son, Jesus, offering himself on our behalf? Well, we know where we'd be, God, because we'd be in the same place that Cain was, not in your grace. God, may we this morning be reminded of the heinousness of sin, its deception, its danger. May we take heed lest we fall. Let let us not think that it couldn't happen to us, God, because sin is a beast that lurks around. Lord, if, if any of us this morning are caught in the midst and entangled by sin, today is the day for us to cry out and ask you to deliver us, and you're faithful and just, and you will forgive us. Lord, no matter where somebody is, whether they're entertaining something or they've already committed it, today's the day of forgiveness. Jesus' blood takes away sin. So God, for somebody here maybe who's never cried out to you before, they, they, they know something's been missing, they, they know that sin hasn't satisfied, in fact, it's only isolated them, it's only left them feeling guilty. Lord, today is a day of salvation. So God, would you stir in, in a heart? Would you, would you rescue us? Oh, we need you. God, we can't do this on our own. We, we can't overcome the beast of sin on our own. We need Jesus, and so we cry out today, deliver us. And God, would you do such a work in this body of believers, in this congregation, in every person in this room, in those joining us online, would you make us more like Jesus? Would you strip away the, the pride, the arrogance, the selfishness, and make us more like Jesus? Well, we're asking for that today, God. And may you get all the glory through that. In Jesus' name, amen.